Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Doreen Stern. If you're going to come, you're going to do it my way. My way. Do you get it? I've been doing this for 50 years. It's my way. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I need to give some Patreon shout outs here to new Patreon members. Eleni Saxton, Alan Weber, and Melvin Matthias. Guys, thank you so much. We are really, really excited about the level of support people are coming through with with Patreon lately. It's really making us feel like we've got some legs underneath us again, and it's making us very, very hopeful for the future. That is, if the trend continues, if people keep signing up for Patreon and people keep upping the amount that they're sending into us, it will really put us in a spot where we have some real security and feel like we're building rather than just surviving. And all of our Patreon supporters not only get, you know, all the bonus content there, the bonus stories, the check-ins, the interviews with storytellers and risk staff members and all of that, but also Patreon members get to know that they are very much so, very much so, helping keep this thing going, that they are really an essential part of this entire project. So huge gratitude to those who have recently signed up. You know, you go to patreon.com slash risk to become a member and start getting all the perks of becoming a member, or you can make a one-time donation by going to paypal.me slash risk show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is David Bowie behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Older Folks. Kind of an interesting episode in that all four stories you're going to hear are from folks in their senior years who are always fascinating to hear from. Now, in the history of the show... 
We've had incidences where an older person will tell a story on the show and some listener will write in that they were offended, that something was worded or framed in a way that doesn't seem to reflect the current consciousness of what is, you know, optimal ways of wording or framing things. Very similar to how on Thursdays now we replay old episodes of the show from about 10 years ago and are regularly hearing from folks, hey, this person worded something in a certain way that doesn't jibe with how people are talking nowadays. And so, as you know, on Risk, we tend to leave leeway for that sort of thing. However, there is so much to be gained by listening to the stories of folks who lived through different eras to learn about what life was like in the 1960s and the 1970s and such. One of the reasons that we, as a movement for the people, have to be checking in with older folks like Angela Davis and Noam Chomsky and uh, Cornell West is because they've been here before. (laughs) They have experience. They know how... These things go. And in the process of looking back at my father's life, you know, it was so moving. The priest who did the um, funeral for my father was a friend of my dad and took great care to basically go over my dad's whole biography with my mom before the funeral, you know, like he knew a lot of it already, but he wanted to like make clear, okay, so your father worked for this social justice initiative in the late 50s and then in the 60s switched over to this one. He really wanted to make sure he knew my father's history and that was just so profound and helpful and healing and illuminating for all of us to hear the story told so completely. Let's not forget, this is the year 2020 when prominent Republicans took to national television with the talking points that older people are expendable. There there were a couple weeks there, a couple months back, where official Republican talking points were just universally going out over the airwaves Let grandma and grandpa die if it might get the Dow Jones up again. (laughs) So let us come to our senses and love and value and listen to our elders. I might be older than a lot of you guys. I'm 50. So listen to me when I tell you that swingleft.org is a great organization to check out if you want to find ways of helping to get out the vote for this coming election. Lots of different ways they make available for you to make a difference. Just go to swingleft.org. I've always been very impressed with how they do what they do. Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear from Dennis McSorley, a story he told, I think it was 2017, when Risk, I think, first went to Burlington, Vermont, that Dennis shared the story you're about to hear at one of our live shows. I think it was at Arts Riot 
there in Burlington, Vermont. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was told at one of our live streams. Now, something new about our live streams. We're going to start making them more of a special occasion. We're going to be doing fewer of them, basically. So you're going to have to make more of a point to get a ticket in advance so that you can get in because there's going to be fewer of them. We used to be doing them, you know, kind of on a weekly basis. But now the next ones are going to be September 10th and September 26th. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. But keep in mind, there's not going to be as many of them anymore. So make a point to be there. Get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Anyway, this story we're about to hear was told by Harold Cox. You can find Harold on Instagram at Harold underscore D underscore Cox. Now, this was recorded at one of our live streams, but you'll hear we added some music. You know, we've been experimenting with some of these recordings in various ways. So this one's going to sound a little different. So here he is now. This is Harold Cox with a story we call The Fainter. Hello, everybody. I'm Harold. I'm coming from Boston. I grew up in Houston, Texas, and I had a very normal life. I did all of the things that you do when you are a kid. I dug my way all the way from Houston, Texas to China. Indeed, I actually only got about a foot and a half before it was time for lunch. I broke my collarbone, I learned how to play the clarinet, and I was a talker. I could talk to anybody, anywhere, about anything. And I did all of these things and more as part of my family, which included my mother and father, my brother and my sister. Now, truth be told, we were poor, but we had middle-class values. My father was a minister in one of the churches there. And um, there was a lot of emphasis placed on education, there was emphasis placed on spending time with the family. So we had all of our family meals together. We ate breakfast and we ate dinner together every day during the whole time that I lived at home. We also took, um, took vacations. And so I lived a very normal life. One day I went to school, normal thing. Went to school, went to my classes. I was about 12 years old at this time. And I did all the things that you would do on that particular day. And someplace during the day, I fainted. Now, this is something that actually happened a few times. I fainted a few times over a number of period of time. And my parents obviously were concerned about this. They took me to a doctor. The doctor did all kinds of tests and gave me medication and none of it worked. And the reason that none of it worked is because I was faking. It wasn't real. 
I just decided on that very first time that I decided to do this, I was in my chair and I was thinking, you know, nobody's talking to me right now. I think that what I ought to do is to faint. Now, I had seen people on the television and in movies, they would just roll over, somebody would come and shake them, and then they would get up and they would go on about their lives. And I thought, it's time for people to be talking to me. So that's what I did. I just rolled out of my chair and I just fainted. And I did this quite often. Now, for me, I actually thought it was kind of funny. Nobody else did. But I did learn that I could get things that I wanted, and more importantly, I could prevent from doing things. So if I didn't want to take that test, I just fainted. If I didn't want to wash the dishes, I just fainted. If I didn't want to go to church, I just fainted. If I didn't want to play baseball, and I hated baseball, I hate baseball now, but my family thought that it was a good thing for me to spend time with other kids, well, if I didn't want to do it, I just fainted. Now, other than this little thing, I was a pretty normal kid. Now, as a 12-year-old kid, there was actually something else that I knew how to do. I knew how to drive a car. Now, I had actually never taken a driving lesson. I had actually never driven a car, but I knew how to drive a car because I had watched my father. Every time I got in the car, I watched everything that he did and I thought, I can do this. I just need an opportunity to demonstrate it. So one day, I was home alone. Nobody else was there, just me. I went and I got the spare keys to my father's brand new metallic blue Buick LeSabre. Now, you may recall that these were huge cars because this was in the early 60s and these are gigantic cars. I went out to the garage. Our garage was this little frame, unattached building that was right next to our house. It was just for this one vehicle and it was pretty narrow garage for this huge car that was in it. I ran my hand over the sleek design of the car. It felt good. I got in the car and I sat in the driver's seat. Now I was in the throne and it felt good. I put the key in the ignition. I turned it on. I knew the car would start. I put the car in gear and then I put my foot on the accelerator and the car began to glide out of the garage. I am driving a car. It pulled all the way out into the driveway. I put my foot on the brake. The car stopped. I can drive. I've always known I could drive. And then I started thinking about all the places that I could go at that particular moment. Well, I could go down to the school where my mother was at some meeting. And then I thought, nah. Then I thought, I could go over to one of my friend's houses and I could show him that I could drive. And then he and I could go over to some other friends and we could all kind of pal around together. And then I thought, no, my mother needs some items from the store. So why don't I just go to the store and get those things? And then I thought, you know, I haven't actually been given permission to drive this car. 
So probably what I ought to do is to put the car back into the garage. But before I do that, I need to make certain that the tires are straight because that's very important. So I got out of the car, I walked in front of the car and I looked at the tires. Now they seemed to be pointing in a direction that wasn't going to take them directly into the garage. I thought I better straighten the tires. So I went over to one of the tires, I got down on my knees, I wrapped my arms around the tire, and then with all my might, I was going to straighten it. Eh! But it wouldn't move. So I grabbed it a little tighter, and then I was going, eh! it didn't move. And I thought, you know, truth is, I've actually never seen anybody straighten the tire by getting down on their knees. They use the steering wheel. And I know how to use a steering wheel. What you do is you turn, you turn, you turn, you turn, you turn, you turn, turn, turn. And then when it stops, the wheels are straight. I got back into the car. I began to turn the steering wheel. Turn, 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 turn. Okay, I now know that the tires are straight. I put the car in gear. I put my foot on the accelerator. The car began to go in this direction that it wasn't supposed to be going in. Now, I know that I need to stop the car, but I also know one of the things that my father has always said, keep your eyes on the road. So I had to keep my eyes on the road. I didn't have time to look down about where my feet were, so I just pressed something. It was the accelerator. The car went faster, it lurched forward, and then what I heard was and it came to an abrupt halt. I got out of the car, I looked. The car had now slid up against the side of this very narrow garage. The paint had been pulled off. The front of the car had hit the inside wall of the garage, and I thought, well, maybe the most important thing that I could do at this moment would be to pack my bags and leave. And then I thought, you know, maybe I don't really know where to go. So I should do the other thing that I know I've been taught. And that is, if you tell the truth, the truth will set you free. But I knew that at that moment, the only thing the truth would give me would be a beating. So I decided, can't do that. And so I decided, what I need to do is to come up with a story. I was a talker, so I could come up with a story. And so I came up with a real story. And then I thought, now I should just faint. Because fainting has worked for me in the past. Let's see if it'll work for me now. So the plan was, I was going to be ready to tell the story and they will then only be concerned about the fainting, everything will be all right. So I came up with the story and then I lay on the ground and I just waited because I knew eventually somebody would come. And in time, someone did, it was my mother. And someone had gone to the school and brought her back. Now a mom was coming up the driveway with our neighbor and when they saw me, the neighbor started saying, you know, I bet I know what happened. What happened is somebody came here, they were trying to steal the car, and Harold went outside to try to do something, and look what happened to poor Harold. 
And I thought inside my head, that wasn't exactly my story, but I think that sounds pretty good. And then I thought, I heard him say, um, now we need to call the police. And I thought, yeah, we don't need to do that. So it was time for me to come too. So I started coming too. Oh, my woozy head, my woozy head, I said. And I was beginning to launch into the story. And my mother said, no, 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 no. We don't want to hear about the story right now. You're Something's wrong. And now my dad is coming up. And my dad is there. And again, I tried to launch into the story. And he said, no, no, no. Uh, what we want you to do is we want you to go in the house. And we want you to get in the bed. I went in the house. I got in the bed. My father came in shortly after, and I tried to launch into the story. He said, no, 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 something's wrong. And what I want you to know is I want you to get a really good sleep tonight because tomorrow we will talk about the car. Next morning, I got up and very slowly was putting on my clothes to go down for breakfast because I knew that this was going to be my last day on earth. I went downstairs, sat at the table with my family and waited. There was no talk about the car. The next day, I went down to the breakfast. There was no talk about the car. The third day I went down, there was no talk about the car. And do you know how long it took before we finally talked about the car? Never. We have never talked about the car. And even though we never talked about it, I'm certain that my family was having conversations among themselves about this car, but we never talked about the car. And I wanted so badly to talk about it, but then I also didn't want to talk about it because of what I was really embarrassed about what would happen and I didn't know what I was going to say, but I was also concerned about something else. My mother at that time used to refer to me as Mr. Nice Nasty. She would say, you're just nasty, boy. You're just nasty. Look what you do. Sometimes you put on clean clothes and you haven't even taken a bath. You're just nasty. You are manipulative. There are things that you do that you try to control other people. You're just nasty. And what I didn't want to do was to prove to my mother at that moment that indeed she was right. I didn't want to do this. So I was afraid of having this conversation. And now so many years later, decades later, I am still thinking about this car. And the thing that I have been thinking about is remembering the story I've been told that if you tell the truth, the truth will set you free. So I am here tonight talking to all of you I'm here tonight talking to the family members from Texas that may be on this line as well. I want you to know, yes, I ruined the car. Yes, I faked the illness. And now I hope somebody, anybody, will set me free.
a suspect collapses in apparent distress. Only police say this was no medical emergency. Yeah, in fact, they call it a con. Call, 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 call it a con. And the same word could be used to describe the suspect who turned out to be an escaped convict. Oh. You spoke to police about how they knew he was faking it. You can actually see this on the video that he broke his fall. Did he take any? Did he take anything? He didn't swallow anything. An escaped inmate attempted to evade being arrested on February 8th by faking a seizure. People that can have seizures, they don't break their falls. They were driving a stolen car, and inside they found stolen credit cards, meth, and used needles. It's odd that someone would, you know, kind of fake a medical emergency to try to get out of uh, being charged or arrested. So, um, Mitch and I were talking, and Harold walks in, and he says, you guys want to get high? And he's got like a little Q-tip joint. Harold always had the good stuff. And we're like, sure. Where are we going to do this? And he goes, come on, we're going on the roof. We're going to the roof. And he goes, yeah, come on. So we open the window, and the three of us step out on the roof, and we fire this thing up. And, and, and uh, it is, it's good. And so, so Mitch and Harold are talking like metaphysics. Yeah, thank you. And, and I'm noticing this pigeon coop on the other side of the street that I hadn't seen before, and it's like spectacular. The brown feathers and blue and the songs they're singing, and there's a stick, and the guy lets out about 300 of them. And it's a beautiful sunny day, and, uh, and what could be better than this? The thing is that the roof that we're standing on is uh, above the lunchroom of the Alejandro de Gautier Elementary School where the three of us are New York City public school teachers and we, we've, we've climbed out the window of my classroom while our kids are eating pineapple chunks downstairs with the whole neighborhood able to see us. Now, it didn't start out like that. I, uh, I, uh, I grew up in a great family in Ridgewood, Queens. Shout out to Queens. Everybody knows what that is. It's the center of New York. And uh, I always felt uncomfortable and fearful and kind of strange in my own skin, as they say, even at like five. So I didn't know that I was going to be looking for ways to escape. And I came from a good family. I'm the oldest of the four kids, two sisters, a brother born on my 16th birthday. But anyway, my father was a New York City police officer. He never called me by my name or son or anything, but he did say to me, if you ever get in trouble, I'm not getting you out of it. You hear me? I heard him. So I had like an Alfred Hitchcock kind of fear of the police. And what would happen with me is to escape reality. I would do everything possible to look good and to think crazy things and see if I could do them and not get caught. Uh, I went to great schools, scholarship high school, the whole thing, I had a high school girlfriend. And the playground at school where I met some of the greatest people in my life. All my good friends came from sports and things like this. And uh, the park was a great place. Um, by the time I was 16, uh, my friend Chris and I would stay late in the park and play playground ball with the older guys because we wanted to have like 
we just wanted to be better players and kind of be with these guys because they were talking about like you know pussy and smoking cigarettes they had girlfriends some of them were engaged they had cars so this one Saturday I get invited to go to the putting ball with them after playing ball with them and getting thrown into the fence and stuff and I order a Coke, and uh, I said, I'll have a Coke. And they said, give the kid a drink. So I had about, I don't know, seven rum and Cokes. And I, and I and real quick, and I, I like Coca-Cola, and I blacked out, went home, passed out, slept through the night, almost missed mass the next day, and no one said anything about it. Nobody smelled anything, nothing. I thought, okay. So I would continue to, to do that kind of stuff. Chris wound up becoming my pot dealer. I didn't even know about that, but he said, I know about this. And he sold me ounces, and for you who understand, ounces were $25 an ounce back then, and really good stuff. So anyway, and uh, I was like 19 when I started that, because I was this Catholic thing, so guilt and fear and all this stuff is on top of me. Chris was Lutheran, and he had a hot girlfriend who smoked Newports and stuff, so we became very friendly. We became very friendly. Until, like, by the time I'm in college, I'm against the war, and the whole thing was starting to split, where you'd find out who your friends really were. And so we're, we're playing a game uh, at the park, and, you know, you play hard in the park. It, it, playground basketball in New York is amazing anywhere it is. And I'm going for a clean layup to the basket, and I get pushed, and it's like, hey. And I'm like, hey, what the fuck? And Chris is like, yeah, fuck you. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, fuck you, pussy. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, college guy. College guy, faggot. And he had become this like conservative type of guy. I guess he was. I didn't even know that because the only thing that kept us together was weed, dead concerts, camping, the girls, the beach, music. You know, this didn't come out. So, you know, Chris would wind up going to the police academy in New York. He'd still be my pot dealer for quite a while. <laughs> and I became a teacher. So we both got deferred jobs and not have to serve in the military. I didn't have to because I got this job. And then Kathy and I got married, my first love, my high school sweetheart. And I'm still playing ball with these leagues and everything I'm doing centers around that, but also in this escape mode to, uh, you know, every league and every team I was with drank and smoked. And I never saw anything wrong with this and I didn't think it was gonna lead to anything, there would be trouble. And Kathy was on this pill and we had a nice little apartment and uh, everybody then was getting married. We were like in our 20s. And for about five or six years, we just had fun. And then she got off the pill and she said, let's have a family. So, okay. I was all for it. But also part of me was thinking, something's going to change here and I'm not sure if I want to do that. <laughs> and what was going to change was that this daily drinking and weed smoking was going to get brought up. <laughs> so, I, uh, I started having an affair with Kathy's first boyfriend's wife when she got pregnant, because I had the summer free, and Phyllis loved to get high, and she had an air conditioner, and, <laughs> and, and we would just clean off the pot on Eric Clapton albums and do this for the summer while my wife is still working and gonna have a baby. We had a little boy, Phyllis said she was pregnant, and I got very scared, and she miscarried, which was a good thing, I thought, at the time. And, um, and my son is going to school, and he's like five, six, and Kathy's saying, Dennis, you know, Dennis, look, um, 
you know, a couple of beers and all of a sudden I understand, like, you have to still play in these leagues with these guys. You're out during the week and you come home late. And, you know, you're a father now. And I'm like, I understand. And I thought I was a good father. I'm giving the kid a bath in the sink and everything, you know. And I'm really trying to be different than my dad. And I'd say, no, 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 really, I'm going to cut it out. I'm going to, I'm going to cut it out. Of course I love you. What are you saying? What are you talking about? You know. Yeah, no, I will. I will. And what I did was I just stopped doing it around them. And as my son got a little bit older, he's taking drug awareness classes and stuff. So she said more and more of this. She, she's, and I'm crying. And I'm saying, no, really, why would I do any of that to jeopardize all of this? And she said, I don't know, but you're doing that. And then my son said to me one day, she said, what? what what are you and mom always arguing about? You're always arguing. And I'm like, well, and <laughs> I take a bag of dope and put it on the table and show them the papers and say, it's about stuff like this. Now, this is not good. You shouldn't do this. But your dad does. And he just gave me this look. I know I was hurting him, and I couldn't do a thing about it. So... Time goes by, I'm off the roof of that school, this is still happening, and I'm now a uh, professional. I've got a couple of degrees. My outside life looks good, my inside life is still an escape from reality. I'm always uncomfortable, and I don't even know it. She says to me, listen, I just want to tell you, we can't go on like this. You're going to either do something about this, or I'm gone. So I'm in this school in Brownsville, Brooklyn, where these couriers come in and they, uh, they hand out little documents you have to sign from the district office and the superintendent. Guy says, Mr. McSorley. I said, yes, right here. And I signed this thing. And he walks away and says, you've just been served. Now I know what that means. And I open the envelope and it's got plaintiff defendant. And all of a sudden it's like real. And I'm like, wow, wait a second. And I just break down. I hit the floor in the principal's office I didn't know what to do. He said, what's wrong? And I said, I can't talk. He said, go home. Whatever it is, you can work it out. I got home. I said, why would you do this at work? She said, my lawyer. I go, your lawyer? Your lawyer? She said, yeah, yeah. The lawyer said that guys like choke their wives out. They kidnap kids. This is what happens when they get pissed off. And I'm like, I can't believe it. Now, we had talked about it, and I had done nothing about it. And she said, you got to move. So I go back to uh, Ridgewood, the neighborhood I grew up in. And it's a long time later, and I get a little apartment. And I'm kind of feeling glad because this little pest wife is off my back. And now maybe I could do what I want to do. But I'm really feeling lonely and sad, and I don't know how to handle that. Now, before the divorce thing started, I had been coming home from work because there wasn't too much sex going on between her and I. And there's a neighborhood where these girls would work on the corner, and there's just cop cars and street hookers and empty factories. And I picked up this gal named Kim. And a couple of times, we'd just have a little sex in the car, a blowjob or something, I'd give her $5, we'd smoke a joint together. This is where I was winding up before the paperwork. So I thought, maybe go look for her. Maybe she's still there. Besides, I'm going to these singles clubs for over 35, you know, these like plus women lingerie shows. I'm having a time in my life, and I'm miserable. I find Kim. And she's like, baby, where you been? You know, I haven't seen her in like two years. And she jumps in the car and she says, you know, pull around here. And I go, no, no, I have an apartment. Come on. She goes, really? I come over there, take a shower. I got some food. I got money. I got drugs. And, you know, like with this happy little couple. Now, Kim is 
black, gorgeous. She's about five foot nine, and I live in this white, Polish, Italian, kind of like blue-collar neighborhood where they haven't seen a black person, and they don't want to. So I have to bring her in at night. I have to hide her from everybody, and once in a while we go out, and there'd be people sitting on the stoop, and they'd give me the stink eye, and, and I would act like it's not happening. This reality wasn't real. One time she's there, and she uh, takes out this like plastic pipe, she sits down, she's got this broken piece of an umbrella. And I had been handing out these crack kills posters in public schools that had a skillet with a fried egg on it. They were these iconic posters. You know, this is the Nancy Reagan time. Just say no, don't do this shit. And she's sitting there and she says, try this, baby. Hold this, hold this thing here. And she puts this and I go, what is this? She goes, never mind, just hold it. She's like, don't exhale. She holds my nose and like the top of my head blew off. I had never been that high that fast in my life. And I said, what do we just do? She said, that's crack, baby. Those are rocks. I said, where did you get this? Can we get this? She goes, slow down, baby, slow down. Slow down. We got time. Well, within uh, three, four months, I'm a $200 a day all around the clock crackhead plus all the other stuff. Now, I had been stopped by cops a lot and it was like reverse profiling. The neighborhood we would cop in, she'd go with me and she'd run. She robbed me a lot of times. I'd always bring her back and she'd give me some story that you know somebody hustles on and put a knife to her neck. And I kind of was real forgiving because I needed her companionship. Cops would stop and they would say, uh, what are you doing around here? One time I'm in like a complete, like in the hood where I work at night, it's like four o'clock in the morning, somebody's just gone into a project, these cops shine a light on me, these New York City cops, you know, they're like, what, what, I'm out for a little fresh air. And they said, really, why don't you go home, get the fuck out of here, and I'm like, all right, all right. So I couldn't get arrested, and I'm thinking of my dad, if this ever happens, and I knew there were setups, and some of the hookers were working with the cops. She was in the car one night. I parked at a fire hydrant. She went to get some potato chips. A cop car pulls up because I had backed into the car behind me, pulled into the car in front of me, backed into the car behind me, pulled in the front. And the cops, these two cops are just laughing. They get out of the car. They go, what the fuck are you doing? They go, you got to turn the wheel. Plus, you parked by a hydrant. She ran away. And I said, you know, officer, and I'm crying because I'm thinking, this is it. This is it right now. My dad the whole thing, my job, it's all like reality. And she had gotten away, and later she starts telling me, listen, she says, you know, and I knew this from my fascination with the cops and the fact that my father sometimes had an envelope that had cash in it, and I didn't ask him any questions, but he was a foot cop, he was a patrolman. But these undercover narcotics cops in Brooklyn, TNT they called them, Tactical Narcotics Task Force, there was no war on drugs, I knew this. They were doing street busts all the time. I saw some of them happening. And she said, you know, there's a couple of them down there that are shaking everybody up. I said, what are you talking about? She said, you know, they're taking the product, they're, they're using it, they're letting uh, some of the girls go for like a blowjob for them. Uh, they're threatening people, and they're really like cowboying up down there. And I'm like, wow, huh. So anyway, this goes on and on. I'd see her as much as I could. I'm running out of money. I'm like 155 pounds. I'm still trying to be a school supervisor in Brooklyn. Very hard to be Clark Kent and Superman, and you need one of those two things. And we're walking along in this neighborhood where 
I had to have either her or a Spanish girl go with me because I looked like a cop to most of them. And they go, no, he, you know, he's got money. Sell him some stuff. And uh, we're turning the corner to go to my car, and it's a nervous place because other addicts will beat you up. They'll take your money, and it's crowded, and it's sweaty. And so we're just walking like we're on, you know, Williston Road or whatever. You know, so anyway, all of a sudden, these four gray Plymouth Furies pull up, and they slap these blue lights up on top, and like at least 15, 20 cops get out, no uniforms, hanging badges, and they're on the fucking wall. Everybody on the fucking wall. Get on the wall. You, 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 get on the wall. Everybody on the fucking wall, open your legs up. Anything we find, you know, don't you, don't you turn around. And I hear Kim say, that's him. And I don't turn. All I'm seeing is my dad disgraced, my name and picture on the front of the New York Post, school supervisor with the perp walk. And all of a sudden I get grabbed by the back of the neck and I get like half arm locked and I'm being walked around the corner into one of these cars, into the back seat. I get pushed, I almost bump my head and somebody gets in the front, turns on the inside light and turns around. It's Chris. And he goes, look at you, you piece of shit. What the fuck, look at you. You are one sick motherfucker. You know, you're hanging out with these people. You know what's wrong with everybody down here? How the fuck? What a loser. What a mother. So I'm just taking it. You know, I'm taking a wash of guilt. I don't know what's going to happen. And I said, Chris, 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 can I say something? He goes, what the fuck are you going to say to me? I said, look, this is my little community down here and this is what I'm hearing I'm hearing stories about I'm not saying it's you I'm not saying it's any of these guys around the corner I'm just saying that there's people down here getting pissed off they got guns they're a little upset something pushing around is going on I'm just saying Chris you know you're my friend be careful hey get the fuck out of here he goes get out of the fucking car and go home and I don't want to see you down here again ever well I don't know what happened but I turned myself in at work and wound up getting sent to this place upstate, across the lake here, actually. And uh, I came back to the apartment, and I'm scared because, well, I'm right back there. I'm by myself. And the doorbell rings. Now, nobody even knows I'm alive. I haven't seen a real friend or anybody in my family in months. And uh, I can't see over because it's two over two. It's one of these, like, attached houses, and there's a cornice. I can't see the actual door. And I'm thinking it's the guy with the phone book. It's them fucking Jehovah people, you know, and or something. Who could it be? So I go down the stairs, and there's a vestibule door with a lace curtain, and I open that door, and then there's the outside door to the street, and I open it, and it's Chris. Chris is standing right there. And I'm like, Chris? He goes, yeah. I go, how did you find me? He goes, Dennis, I'm a fucking cop. We know how to find people. He's like, besides, asshole, your name and address is in, in the white pages of the phone book. It does not take a fucking detective to find you. I just rang the bell. Put in a couple of pounds. What, did you go to rehab? I go, yeah, you know, as a matter of fact, I did. Yeah, good for you. I said, you didn't come here to find out. What's going on with you? He says, uh, well, you know, Ellen left, took the kids. Uh, house is gone. And the, uh, the DA said that if, I, uh, if I'm willing to testify against seven other guys in my unit, maybe they'll take some time off. But I'm going away for a while, not like you did. I'm going to go to this penitentiary down in Florida. And I'm like, Chris, what? Penitentiary in Florida? He goes, well, you know, cops who put people in jail up here are not 
well-liked when they go into jail. So they send us out of state to other places. So, you know, I just, uh, that's what it's going to look like. So I didn't know what to say, and he didn't either. We had spent so much time playing ball. We kind of loved each other, but it was never that kind of, you know, talk. You know how guys are. We just, so, you know, I just said, Chris, you know, good luck, man. And he shook my hand, and he said, yeah, you too. And he turned and walked down a couple of cars, got in his car and drove and made a left. You know, I never, I never did see Chris again. I never saw Kim again. I moved. I think about them. I think about a lot of things. I think about the story I've just been telling you because that's all part of me. But, um, you know, I, I got a second chance in my life to live in a different way because it was going to end tragically. Because I got a second chance, though, it didn't guarantee me a front row seat or a place in the sun. It was just going to be a second chance, and I'm just lucky that I received it. Thanks. This is Risk. This is the Velvet Underground behind me now. And we just heard from Dennis McSorley, who you can find at DennisMcSorley.com. Before that, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. One of the things I've been personally kind of thrilled about this year is the way I've been interacting with fans in new and very dynamic ways. If you don't know what Cameo is, it's a service where someone can make personalized little video messages for their fans. So I have thoroughly enjoyed wishing happy birthday or singing songs or doing little sketches or giving completely sincere pep talks or whatever to fans via Cameo. You can find that at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. People usually buy one for a friend or a spouse or whatever it might be. And then there's this thing called subtext that I've been doing where I send out a text and anyone who's subscribed to it gets the text. They're daily texts about behind-the-scenes things, things I'm thinking, questions that I have for fans, tips on storytelling, just anything. It, you know, pictures from my you know, life, whatever. Uh, and then fans can reply to me, and only I see those replies, and then I can text them individually back. That is at subtext. Just go to joinsubtext.com slash risk show and the first 14 days are free. And then if you like it, you agree to $5 per month. Uh, the last thing is if you go to kevinallison.com, 
I'm doing one-on-one sessions with people, either a half hour long or an hour long, mentoring people, uh, doing storytelling, coaching with folks. There's all sorts of opportunities for how you might meet with me, consult with me at kevinallison.com. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Okay, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Doreen Stern, who was such a delight when she did the live stream a few weeks back. But before that, we're going to hear from Walter Zimmerman. Walter is in the Risk book. He was just fabulous the last time we had him on the podcast. You can find Walter on Facebook, and here he is now with a story we call How Life Is. It's a Sunday summer in 1960. My Weasley cousin and I are standing on the front porch. I'm trying to lock the door so we can run off to church where he'll be forgiven for everything. And because I go to a different church, I'll be sitting in the pew contemplating going to hell. Unfortunately, because I'm going to hell, I drop the front door key. It falls down on the porch and then slides down between the concrete and the siding. Oh my God, we've got to get the key out. They'll kill us. Get in the house, I yell at my cousin. My weaselly cousin always dances around like he's going to pee his pants. Get in the house and go and open the silverware drawer and get a butter knife, for God's sake. I'm going to look for a flashlight so we can see where the goddamned key is. So I pull open another drawer in the kitchen right opposite the refrigerator, and there, instead of a flashlight, I see a big, black, hard-bound, three-ring binder, which I open up to discover... To my horror and amazement and delight, (gasps) 
cartoons that show Popeye doing things he never does in the Sunday funnies. Oh my God, he's got an enormous penis and he's he's doing weird things to olive oil and she seems to like it. Oh my God, it was amazing. It was my first taste of hardcore pornography in my own kitchen. Well, of course, my cousin forgot about the butter knife and I forgot about the flashlight and we, we leafed through it and there were limericks and there were songs and there were cartoons and there was one really luscious story about a young boy not that much older than me who was having adventures in his own house because his older sister had invited over a friend of hers and she decided to let the young man know what sex was all about. Oh my God. She gave him a hand job. Oh my God, she put her mouth on his penis. Oh my God, she let him... <gasps> well, um, <clears throat> we took the story out of the binder because we thought it really deserved a whole lot more and closer inspection. So we thought we would do the, what do they call it, the shared custody routine. He would have it for three days until I couldn't stand it anymore, then I would have it for three days until he couldn't stand it anymore. And so we did. I don't even remember if we went to church that day or not. I know I was going to go to hell that day. So we were sharing the story and not thinking anything more of it until one day we came into the house and my father, a silent man, was sitting in the living room with a black binder on his lap. Did one of you boys take something from this book? And my cousin and I, being good church-going boys, looked at each other and said, no, 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 no not at all. No, no mm -mm, I don't even know what you're talking about. And then my father turned to my Weasley cousin. He said, you go into the bathroom. You take off every single thing you're wearing, including your shoes and socks. Put everything in the bathtub. Wrap yourself in a towel and come back out here and we will see what happens. And so my Weasley cousin did just that. And my father goes into the bathroom and he is clearly going through everything my cousin had on, including his shoes. You know, I knew my father wasn't going to find the story in the bathroom because it was in my wallet in my back pocket. And I knew I couldn't take it and hide it anywhere because my Weasley cousin would tell on me and then get forgiven at church. Ah! So my father came back out sent me into the bathroom. I had to take off every single thing I had on, including my shoes and socks, and my wallet full of filth, and put it in the bathtub. Why didn't I put it in the toilet? Why didn't I hide it out the window? I didn't think. I was terrified. I went back outside, wrapped in that flimsy towel that I knew was not going to do me any good. And my father came back after a few minutes with that folded piece of paper in his hand. And there was a silence. And instead of swatting me or pushing me into the fireplace, he said, you know, life isn't like this. And that was it. Like no screaming, no beatings, no slapping across the face, just life isn't like this. And you know, we never saw that binder again, no matter where I looked. And I have to admit, I was stunned then, of course, because of my expectations, but I was also stunned because if life isn't like this, then how come we found a big black binder of pornography in the kitchen?
And I guess it sort of stayed with me for a while because years later, I established a pen name for myself and wrote at least two dozen prize-winning gay sex stories for men's magazines in New York, hoping that they would have orgasm after orgasm after orgasm, because life, maybe it could be like this. Everyone, please welcome to the virtual stage Doreen Stern! I have a mantra. It is, when the going gets tough, the tough get manicures. <laughs> so that's how I happen to be at Grace Nails, bemoaning my fate in August of 2004. I'd come to Hartford looking for love, and I thought it was going to be easy. My marriage had ended, and I was sure I was going to meet my soulmate here. And a guy contacted me on Craigslist. I called him Romeo. He was smart. He was a newspaper editor. He asked me probing questions, and he remembered my responses, and he had a great touch. He rubbed my feet on the second date. And I thought, pretty soon I'm going to get lucky. <laughs> Only he ghosted me before the month was out. And I thought, woe is me. Nobody is ever going to love me. I'm always going to be alone. So when I sat at Grace Nails and the manicurist pulled my fingers and she massaged my palms it was just a relief when she told me that it was all going to be fine and I could feel the tension and the dejection seeping out of me. She put the yellow polish on me and my nails and then she brought me over to a drying station. And on the table in front of the drying station was a copy of Elle magazine opened up to the article that said, Extended Massive Orgasm. I didn't even know what that was, but it sounded great. <laughs> because I wanted to come. I had faked orgasm for the 20 years that I was married and for every sexual partner I was with between the ages of 19 and when I got married at 32. And I wanted delicious orgasms. So I sat down and I started reading the article and it referenced Mama Gina's Guide to the Womanly Arts. Sounded good. I ordered it on Amazon and as soon as it came, I went to the pool underneath my balcony at my condo and I was mesmerized by what I was reading and I could feel these jelly beans in my body because Mama Gina said that pleasure is women's birthright. And I was like, yes! I marched up to my third floor condo and I Googled America's Masturbation Queen. <laughs> and I'm going to call her AMQ, just between you and me. And I knew of AMQ because she had a classified ad in the New Yorker 
advertising a tape, a VHS tape called Self-Loving. I wrote my check and I sent it. I got a VHS tape back. I ripped it out. I was married. I had two small kids and I marched downstairs to the family room. I put it in, sat down to watch it. And within a couple of seconds, minutes, 10 naked women and AMQ appeared on the screen, on the TV screen, where my spouse cheered for the Celtics and my six-year-old son watched The Simpsons. And I was apoplectic. I had to get it off. I pressed the eject button. I marched upstairs. I put it in the manila envelope and I hid it in my sock drawer until almost 10 years later when I was leaving because I was getting divorced. So I knew who to call because I had watched it in dribs and drabs over the last year and a half. Hello, this is Doreen Stern, I said to the man who answered. I'd like to schedule a group session with AMQ. I'm sorry, she's not doing group lessons anymore. She's only doing private classes. And the fee is $900. $900. It was like somebody punched me in the chest. Who has $900 for that? And the guy, seemingly reading my mind, said, she's worth every penny. And at that moment, I remembered that that guy from Craigslist, let's call him Romeo, he had bragged the last night I saw him about how his cat had gotten sick in the middle of the night. And he was so proud. He took his cat to the cat hospital and it cost him $1,300. And I realized that if he could pay $1,300, I could pay $900 because my sexuality was worth more than his cat. <laughs> and that's how I got to be on the Greyhound bus between Hartford and Manhattan ruminating. I was going to have to be naked in front of a stranger. And if I was going to come, I was going to have to do it in front of her. And how about if I couldn't do it? How about if I was her only client who failed? Did she give refunds? I didn't think so. Still, when I got to the Port Authority, I hailed a cab. I said, Madison and 23rd, As soon as I got out, I saw a deli, I got myself a salad, I walked across the street, and I ate the salad in the lobby, wondering if the doorman knew what A&Q's line of work was, and then if I was going to be her next client. And then it was getting close to noon, it was time for me to go upstairs, took the elevator, and I got out. I was in front of her door, a brown door, and I thought to myself, I can't do this, I just can't do this. And this voice said, you've been wanting to do this for 31 years. I said, yes, I bought books. I bought armfuls of books. And the voice said, but it didn't work. No, I couldn't find the on switch. And then she said, now you know that pleasure is your birthright and you've got an expert to help you. I squared my shoulders and I hit the buzzer and the door opened and a woman shorter than I answered 
and she had white hair that stuck up sort of like in a crew cut white and gray and I knew she looked older than on the movie probably 15 years had gone by and Wikipedia had said she was 76 and she welcomed me and she showed me I knew that this was the room the foyer that I had seen on the video and she told me where to hang my purse there was a peg and take off my shoes and then she put her hand out her palm out and I knew what that was for because she had called me the week before and asked me to bring the $900 in cash so I had gone to the ATM and it spit out 45 20s and it was a thick wad and I gave her the envelope and she said thank you and she said I'm going to give you a tour of my apartment so you feel safe and she turned around and I followed her and it was a big living room a room that would have been a living room in somebody else's house but there was no furniture in this house and I recognized it because there had been a circle of women in it that I saw on the video their heads were on the outside and their feet were on the inside like they were synchronizing swimming but they had vibrators on their private parts and there were big canvases on the walls I wanted to stare at them because they were naked people women with huge breasts and men with big penises and they were touching each other and touching themselves and I was so embarrassed all I could do is stare at my yellow toenails and keep walking and then there was a kitchen and a bathroom and then there was another door and AMQ put her hand on it turned the knob and then we walked in and holy fuck there was a guy sitting there behind two computer monitors he was young maybe like in his 20s he was wearing a tight black muscle shirt he had black hair and bushy eyebrows and a big nose and he kind of looked like a rodent what was he doing there and AMQ said this is Aaron he's my lover and he won't disturb us and and I thought really we're, we're we're 20 feet where I'm going to be, where I'm going to be naked. And is he going to be at the door listening, getting off at my benefit? And then the voice said, you had orgasms, didn't you? And I said, yes. When I was 15, my high school boyfriend and I, my first boyfriend, walked home from the movies in the dark and... I invited him in and my parents were asleep and before too long we started making out on the parquet floor in our living room. Sometimes he was on top and sometimes I was on top. I liked it better when I was on top. He never touched my skin but he twisted my nipples and he put his the palms of his hands on the back of my ass and he pulled me in to him and we humped and I felt this huge force coming up, up 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 and then it would hang on the top of my head and it was like I was in a barrel and I was on the top of Niagara Falls and then I would go over and it would be this huge shudder and it was the best feeling in the world and I want it again <laughs> and once again I squared my shoulders and when AMQ turned on her heel I followed her and we got back into the living room and she said take off your clothes <laughs> So I took off the silk 
blouse I was wearing that was unbuttoned in a black camisole and a black strapless bra and a silk skirt I had and the thong that I had bought for that occasion. And I just stood there and she said, sit over there. <laughs> and I, it was shady there and I didn't have any clothes on and I said, how about in, over there where it's sunny? And she put her face as close to mine as she could get it so I could see every wrinkle on her 76-year-old face. And she said, if you're going to come, you're going to do it my way. My way. Do you get it? I've been doing this for 50 years. It's my way. <laughs> so I went to sit next to the, where she told me to, and I was thinking, this didn't seem so safe to me. <laughs> and I knew what was coming because I'd seen it on the video. AMQ slid a pie-shaped mirror underneath me. This was called the genital show and tell. And she looked and said, this is your vulva. And I thought, I thought my vagina was down there, but maybe I've got it wrong. And then she said, you've got a gorgeous clip. There it is. And I said, thought, Nobody's ever told me I had a gorgeous clit. And then she said, there's your urethra and your vagina and your anus and your labia. And it seemed like she was labeling constellations. And my body was there, but I had disassociated myself from my body. It was just so weird. Like what, what was going to go on and what was going to come next? And then she pointed to the middle of the room and she said, go live there. And I looked and there was a purple towel with colored pillows. Somehow I hadn't noticed it during the tour. And I went and lay down and she showed me how to rock my pelvis and also to synchronize my breathing. And she said, good job. And she pat me on the shoulder. <laughs> and then she had a bag and she leaned down and she took a two inch vibrator out of her bag and she told me to put my palm out and I did and she said put it on your pussy and I did she told me to rock and breathe and then she said feel good and I said mm-hmm and then she put her hand out and I put it back in and she took out another vibrator a medium-sized vibrator and she said put it on your pussy and I did she said even better right and I said, yes, closing my eyes. And then she gave me a tap and her hand was out. And then she leaned down and she took out this enormous vibrator. It had a head as big as a shower head and a long stalk. It was a magic wand, the Cadillac of vibrators I would later learn. And she gave me a washcloth, a yellow washcloth also. She told me it was so, this vibrator was so powerful, it would hurt my lady bits without the washcloth. And I put it on me, and she told me to rock, and I did. And she, as I rocked, she poured some massage oil on my vulva. I was thinking, what's the fuck that's going on here? And, and, and then I could feel the force coming up, 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 and it was hanging on my head. I was in the barrel, 
And then suddenly I shuddered and I was over Niagara Falls and I thought, ah, I did it. I did it. And I wanted to put my clothes on and rush out of there and take the bus to go back to Hartford. She said, not so fast. <laughs> and she bent down and she took out a barbell, a silver barbell, a dildo in most people's lexicon. And there was one bigger ball on one side, kind of like a little big, the circumference bigger than a quarter and one, the circumference as a dime. And she said, the bigger ball was for my vagina and the little ball was for my anus. And I thought, put something in my anus? Like, what was she thinking? But she told me to put it on my vagina. She said it would, it will open up, she said. And she was right, it did. And she told me to pull it in and out. And then there was a tap on my knee and she started pulling it in and out of me. And I thought, oh my God, where have I come to? And then like, I could feel the shudder, like the force was coming up, 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 up. And I was over and I made, ah! Oh! And I didn't care if Aaron could hear or the doorman or the people on Miss Madison Avenue, it didn't matter. And I came two more times during my session with AMQ. And the last time I flipped my legs up horizontal, looking up so my feet were facing the ceiling. And I started to tip over to go into a plow position. And I saw AMQ's face. She was just astonished. And then I realized I'd gone to the head of the class. Nobody had ever flipped over and done it, gone into a, started to do the plow and then went into a somersault. And then I put my clothes on. And then she walked me to the door. And she said, you're going to do fine. And she was right. Because I bought myself my own magic wand. And I bought one of those barbells from AMQ. And I bought some massage oil from AMQ. And then I discovered female erotica. So it was a complete package. And some people asked me, well, how about partner sex? And I lured the guy from Craigslist, Romeo, back three times. And then I remembered that I really wanted to love somebody. And that person hasn't come along yet. I'm hoping he will, but the, you know, there's no signs guarantee. However, what I can tell you is that I've learned to love the one I'm with myself.
a friendly little cat. Friendly little cat. That is all for this week's episode, our roundup of stories from older folks. This is done again behind me now. And we just heard from Doreen Stern. Before that, a little story by Walter Zimmerman, a story that was edited by our editor, John LaSala. Now, don't forget, we're going to take some time off from doing the live streams. We're gonna start doing the live streams a little less often, which makes them special occasions that you gotta make sure to get your tickets for in advance. There's one on September 10th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. There's one on September 26th at 10 p.m. Eastern. And tickets are at risk-show.com tour. Now, if you look at the show notes in your podcast player for this episode, you'll see a bunch of links for how you can get involved with all kinds of things regarding risk. How you can become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash risk. How you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash risk show. How you can always get those tickets to those live streams at risk-show.com slash tour. How the Risk Book is at theriskbook.com. How you can take storytelling classes, all kinds of storytelling classes. We've been doing 90-minute special master classes. We do classes that are two days. We do classes that meet for weeks on end. You know, you can get some classes that are just videos that you watch in your own time and others that are interactive with our faculty members. Our faculty members are the people who coach, the people you hear on Risk, and you've heard a lot of them on the show as well. And we also do corporate workshops. That's all at thestorystudio.org. Org. Then you can hire me to make personalized videos for you at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. You can hire me as your own personal coach for storytelling training at kevinallison.com. And you can text with me every day about risk and storytelling and life in general at joinsubtext.com slash risk show. Other than that, look us up on Facebook at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group there. Or our subreddit is Risk Podcast. Uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. There's lots of ways to interact with us. And one of the most important ways is to submit your stories. Especially, especially... If you have scary stories now, as we prepare for our next Halloween episode, you can pitch us at pitches at risk-show.com. And there's lots of instructions on how to pitch us on the submissions page at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. My neighbor stole my kitty, but I did see said to my neighbor, said my pussy free, free pussy, sore, wet, hot, bald, free pussy, just a friendly little cat.
Every week your eyesight gets worse. <laughs>